Last week, of course, was Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and so we celebrated the resurrection, which we talk about week in and week out, of course, but a special celebration on Easter when we do that. Um, said that Jesus rose from the dead to bring peace to all who believe, and so we talked about that that flourishing, that shalom, that peace that the Bible speaks of, uh, is that it's an abundance, right? That Jesus came to give us abundant life, not just life, not just a do-over, not just a reset, but abundant life and spiritual blessings in Christ. And so uh, that's one of the things that Jesus secured in the resurrection, that he put a stamp on it, right? That everything he had promised before was true. And so what an amazing, amazing time to celebrate um, and to look back on that. Today we begin a new series called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Uh, These are either things that just don't make sense to us because um, it's not the same context or culture that they were written in. Um, Things when they maybe move from the original languages to English, lose some of the the context or the meaning, Uh, or maybe sometimes they're just difficult teachings and we think, surely he didn't mean that, right? Uh, And so we're going to be looking at those uh, over the next uh, six weeks or so, Uh, different sayings that Jesus uh, gave us or things that are maybe a little hard to to palate sometimes and dive into those and really see what he is getting at uh, with some of these statements. Uh, To kind of piggyback on the idea of looking at the teachings of Jesus, specifically the words from his mouth, uh, during our second hour in Bible study, we're going to be going through a series of I am statements from Jesus. Uh, It's an R.C. Sproul uh, Bible study, kind of a lecture series that he gave. Um, And so we have videos, some weeks may be video, some weeks may be live teaching of Sproul's outlines, Um, and then we'll have some discussion at the end of those times as well. Then after this series and that Bible study series, uh, we will kick off um, a series through Hebrews, which should take us through the summer, and along with that for the second hour Professor Albers will be uh, leading us through a survey of the Old Testament over the summer as well to kind of go along with our Hebrews sermon series. So that's where we're going for the next few months. Um, Lord willing and the creek don't rise. That's uh, what we'll be talking about and studying. So uh, this morning, our uh, hard saying is going to come from Mark's gospel, chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. So this is Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Some scholars say Jesus is teaching here about his second coming, which is part of the end of the age that is marked by the destruction of the temple, which happened in A.D. 70 had not yet happened when Jesus said these words. Um, And he has taught, starting in the beginning of chapter 13, and kind of foretold the destruction of that temple. And so some say he is only teaching about the destruction of the temple, even in this passage I just read. Um, But some say he's talking about the destruction of the temple and the time that he will come back to make all things new and collect us, his church, to himself. 
Uh, I think there's evidence here that he's doing both, that he's talking about the destruction of the temple, which is yet to come when he says this, but also the day of his second coming. This is why he says this generation won't pass away until these things take place. Um, he says that a little bit before the passage that we read. Um, he talks about these things. He's talking about the temple being destroyed and how um, the generation that he's speaking to will not pass away until these things occur. And so I think there's an element here where he's saying, some of you who hear my voice today will still be alive when these things start to unfold. So when the temple is destroyed, some of you will be alive for that, and you will see that. Uh, he mentions uh, um, God drawing people from the corners, the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Um, this is a reference to, again, not just the gospel going out to the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And so uh, everyone who would believe being drawn to the Father through the Son, and that has started to happen and unfold when Jesus says these things. And so that generation had not passed away when Gentiles were starting to come and the gospel was spreading to the ends of the earth. And yet, I think there's also reference here to when Jesus comes back someday. And he says, no one knows that day or that hour. He says, not even the angels or the sun. Hmm. Well, that's the kind of tricky part that we want to look at this morning, the hard saying of Jesus. How does Jesus, the Son of God, who is fully God, not know when he's returning, as he says right here, only the Father knows. He's pointing out that if the heavenly beings don't know the day or the hour, then earthly beings certainly won't. He kind of emphasizes, you don't know when the Son of Man is coming back. You don't won't know when that day is. But that sure hasn't stopped people throughout time for trying to figure out when that day is, or even to predict when that day is. Uh, in 1988, Edgar C. Wisenant, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but uh, Wisenant, Wisenant, he published 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. It's a very popular book. He sold four and a half million copies of it. So uh, maybe not super, super popular, but popular enough to gain some traction. Um, but the rapture did not happen in 1988. And so he published the next year, The Final Shout, Rapture Report, 1989, only to be disappointed yet again. Not to be deterred, though, and I don't know if he crunched some numbers or revisited the biblical prophecies, but he then published, and I don't think it was a full book this time, but he came out with 23 reasons why a pre-tribulation rapture looks like it will occur on Rosh Hashanah, 1993. So he's getting real specific with these predictions, not just kind of throwing things out there Nostradamus style, but like super specific. Not as many reasons this time in 1993, but still very confident. But alas, 1993 came and went, no rapture. And so Edgar blessed us once more with, and now the earth's destruction by fire, nuclear bomb fire in 1994. The bottom line is Edgar didn't know the day or the hour. Didn't stop him from trying to predict or claim when he did know the day or the hour which is strange because I'm sure he based all of his reasons in Scripture, but the very Word of God, these Scriptures say, no one knows the day or the hour. No man knows, which makes sense, right? Why would we be privy to that information? But in Jesus referring to himself as not knowing, he puts forth a particular doctrine that is important for us to understand in order for this saying to make sense. 
Because again, how can it be that Jesus, fully God, second person of the Trinity, not know when he's coming back? God is all-knowing. This is one of his attributes. So how can God in the person of Jesus not know something? It's peculiar. It's because of our first point, which is this. The Son of Man emptied himself to fully experience humanity. The Son of Man emptied himself to fully experience humanity. Now stay with me so I can explain what's going on here. As I mentioned a moment ago, this is a crucial belief to understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do and how he accomplished it. Jesus is pointing us to a doctrine or teaching that affirms his two natures uniting in one person. The $5 term for this is the hypostatic union. Hypostatic, referring to a distinct person or substance, and union, referring to joining together. So in the hypostatic union of Jesus, you have two natures, human and divine, fully man, fully God, joining together, but remaining one distinct person. Um, for further study, you might check out Shylin's rap. I think it's called Hypostatic Union. It's really good. Have you heard it? You've heard it? Yeah. It's really good. Um, I was so excited to be like, oh, there's Reformed theology in rap form, uh, in good rap form. So what's crucial for us to understand and believe and put a, uh, a flag in the ground on, right? If there's, if there's a hill to die on, and I'll keep emphasizing that this morning, what the hill to die on is not, I know the day and the hour when Jesus is coming back, because the scripture says you cannot know that. But if you're going to die on a hill of some kind of distinction, it would be this, Jesus is not two persons, one being God and one being man. No, he is one person the God-man. This doesn't make it any easier for us to understand, but it hopefully makes it clearer for us to explain the things that are essential for us to believe about Jesus. Does it make sense? Not really, but it should be simple to do the math on it. The math of Jesus' two natures joining in one person, it's a non-negotiable for us. doesn't mean we can wrap our minds around how it works, but we shouldn't waver on the question of how many persons is Jesus? One. But how many natures are joined in this one person? Two. And in Jesus, he's not anything less than what it means to be fully human, and he is not less than anything it means to be fully God. He is fully God and fully man. But, and stay with me for this, because this first point, though mind-bending, it's not the main emphasis of the passage that Jesus is presenting to his hearers, and to us. Though fully man and fully God, Scripture says Christ emptied himself in order to take on the form and likeness of man. Now we have parameters here. We have to explain what does this mean and what does this not mean for Jesus to empty himself to take on humanity in order to honor and keep and make sense of who Jesus is being fully God and fully man. He cannot cease being fully God or fully man. But what the Bible is directing us to is that Jesus did not utilize his full divinity, but rather restricted himself, kind of a self-limiting of some of his attributes that he still possessed. There's some false theology, false doctrine out there that says he set aside um, and, and let go of some of these attributes as if he did not possess them anymore. But that is impossible because then he would cease to be fully God. If he gives up or gives away any of the attributes that make him fully God, he's no longer God. We don't want that in our Jesus, right? 
We want fully God all the time. He has to be fully God all the time. And so there's a sense in which he didn't utilize all of his attributes while still possessing all of his divine attributes. Before you think, oh, it's like Superman. He pretends to not be super. He just lives like Clark Kent. I would say no, because Superman is not fully human. He's just pretending to be human. Jesus is not pretending to be human. You say, oh, it's like Superman too, when he gives up all of his powers so that he can experience full humanity and stop being super. I would say no, because he doesn't have access to his powers in Superman 2, if you're tracking with me. He can't be super at all. He doesn't have the cards anymore. What Jesus did was experience full humanity while also maintaining full divinity. He did not pretend to be a human. He really experienced life as a human. J.D. Greer explains it as if he didn't play the God card in all the scenarios that he could have, but he always had the God cards to play and still experience life as a human, not reacting to life like a human, but as a human. This is crucial for us to believe. This is how Jesus could be fully God and still have to submit to his parents and grow in wisdom, favor, and stature, as we read in Luke 2. This is how Jesus could be fully God and limit himself to the specific geography of a physical body. This is how Jesus could be fully God and still become thirsty. This is how Jesus could be fully God and still get tired and sleep. This is how Jesus could be fully God and still be tempted in every way that we are. This is how Jesus could be fully God but be beaten and scarred and killed. But this is also how Jesus could be fully man and heal people. This is how Jesus could be fully man and walk on water and calm the storms with his voice. This is how Jesus could be fully man and forgive sins. This is how Jesus could be fully man and not sin. This is how Jesus could be fully man and multiply bread and fish to feed thousands of people. This is how Jesus could be fully man and raise people from the dead. This is how Jesus could say he didn't know the day or the hour of his return, but could still promise that he would return in power and in glory to judge humanity. And Jesus had to be fully God and fully man in order to be our substitute on the cross, paying the price for sin, but also without sin so that he had no price to pay for himself. He had to be fully man in order to die but fully God in order to overcome the power of sin and death. The human nature in Jesus experienced death, but the divine nature did not, because God cannot die or he would cease to be God. So in this beautiful mystery, Jesus makes all the accounts balance, but still trumps them. This is not a case of Jesus forgiving sin by way of a loophole or finagling the fine print. He paid the price, he settled the debt, but then he transcended the whole equation. So no one could say Jesus broke the rules or he cheated or he didn't follow the law that his own perfect holy character required and set forth. The sin required an offering, right? A death, a life paid. He fulfilled the law and then some. All because he is both fully man and fully God. But the focus of this passage is not that the Son of Man didn't know when he would return. 
Jesus is not saying, hey, this is a really big deal. The Son of Man doesn't know the day or the hour. What he goes on to say is and emphasize is the fact that we don't know the day or the hour. And so what should we do in the meantime? And as with the rest of the Bible, we aren't to get hung up on what we don't know, but to be obedient in what we do know. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but what we do know is that he is coming back, and he's called us to do something in the meantime. Point two this morning, the Son of Man told us to stay awake. The Son of Man told us to stay awake. In verse 33, Jesus says to be on guard and to keep awake. Verse 34, he mentions staying awake again. And then again at the end of the passage in verse 37, he says, stay awake. So while it is fun and important to discuss the ins and outs and possibilities of Jesus' hypostatic union and how the end times will unfold and all those spectacular events, the true test of faithfulness and obedience is not whether we hold to the exact, right, correct view of the end times, which is non-essential. The essential part is that he's coming back. The essential part is that we believe he's coming back someday and that we stay awake until his return. In other words, will we be found faithful and alert when he does come back? Jesus compares his expectation to a man who goes on a journey and leaves his servants in charge and tells them to stay alert and ready, not knowing when he will come back because you wouldn't want to be caught off guard. You wouldn't be uh, for the, the master of the house to come back and find you sleeping, not ready. You've probably seen this trope play out in countless movies, shows, or books. Parents go out of town for the weekend, and the teenagers take the opportunity to throw a party, big rager, only for the parents to come back early. They forgot something or changed their plans. They catch their kid in disobedience with a lot of explaining to do. Uh, I remember once in sixth grade, one time, my teacher left the room, and some of us, I think there was more than just me, uh, started, <laughs> I was trying to remember this story, and I was like, I don't remember anybody else um, doing anything, but... Uh, started acting like a knucklehead, and I specifically remember flipping the lights on and off, right? Just silly, dumb stuff, like, and, you know, not knowing when my teacher would return, only for the teacher to return either while I was doing it, or the teacher in the adjacent room reported to our teacher that someone was flipping the lights on and off, and I remember it's kind of burned in my brain because uh, my teacher said, when you do that, it, it spikes the electric bill, it's really expensive to do that. And I believed her for a long time. I still kind of believe her. But I was like, I don't think that's true. Um, but man, she was like, she's laying it on, right? Like, you should feel really bad about what you did. Um, and I did. That's the other reason that's probably burned in my brain. I got caught, right? It doesn't feel good. I didn't mean to do something so costly, right? I didn't let the two certainties I knew influence my behavior, but rather the uncertainty of when my teacher would return. I knew, one, she's going to come back. And two, I knew what she expected of me until then. But I gambled on the uncertainty of when she would come back, thinking I could get away with it. When I sub at the elementary school now, I tell classes all the time, you know your teacher is coming back tomorrow. And she's going to ask me, how were they? Who did a good job? Who was helpful? Who didn't? Leave me names. They always say that, right? Leave me names. And so I'm trying to tell these kids, you act like she's not going to be here tomorrow. You act like some of the teachers, I could text her right now and tell her what you're doing. But they act like, oh, she'll never find out, right? 
Something just clicks in a kid's head when they see a substitute. Not every kid, but most kids. They act like they have no reference point. How are we supposed to act now? Mr. Wilson's here. Ah, you know, they just the wheels fall off. Part of that's my lack of classroom management skill, but uh, some of that is they're just like, teacher's not here. What can we do? Jesus is saying, don't be found unfaithful and disobedient like this. Instead, do what you're supposed to do regardless of what you don't know. If you fast forward to Jesus' ascension after the resurrection, we see the following scenario play out. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells his followers that they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He gives them a map and a strategy, marching orders. He says they're going to be equipped and empowered by the Spirit who's going to be sent to empower you to be my witnesses to these places. He ascends into the sky, and what do the disciples do? They stand and look into the sky, right? Like, uh, is there something else? Is there something more? Or that was really cool. Like, what's, what's next? And the angels show up, and they say, what are you doing? Why do you stand here looking into the sky? In other words, he's going to come back, but you don't know when. So in the meantime, get to work doing what he just told you you're supposed to be doing. That's what you do know. You're supposed to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's what we do know. Go be witnesses for Jesus. Think about how your life would look if you knew he was coming back tomorrow. It would probably look more like what he's called us to be. But Jesus said to live faithfully because it could be any day or any time. Not to wait until we know for sure it's the next day or that afternoon or whatever it might be. It's not, and it's not a matter of stay awake because you might miss it. Like, Jesus is going to come back and not take you with him because you're not paying attention. He said nothing can separate us from his love. He said no one can snatch us from his hands. He said we're sealed in the Holy Spirit. So our relationship with him, our eternity with him, those things are secure. Staying awake then is a matter of obedience sharing in the mission he's called us to. When we participate in the work he's prepared for us to walk in, as we read in Ephesians 2, we experience the blessing of working out our faith and pursuing our true purpose in Christ. We don't stay faithful to be seen and rewarded. We stay faithful and obedient because it's the right thing to do. And it's what God has repurposed us to be, faithful and obedient. That's why it's less important to focus on when Jesus is coming back and more important to focus on what he's told us to do until then, which is living faithfully in light of certainty despite the mystery. In other words, act on what you do know about without getting bogged down in what you don't know. We don't know when he's coming back. We do know that he's called us to do in the meantime, just to be his witnesses, to be on mission, to be ambassadors for his kingdom, ministers of reconciliation. There's a whole huge laundry list of things that we know he's told us to do. And so while it doesn't mean don't ever talk about or consider when he might be coming back, the point is don't get so focused on that that you skip all the stuff that he's told us to do. So many things to live for him, to honor him, to glorify him, to walk in the light and the victory that he has secured for us.
until he comes back. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Um, even despite this teaching this morning that can kind of uh, leave us scratching our heads and, and trying to figure out how uh, two complete natures come together in the person of you, God, we know what, what that can't mean. We know what it must mean. And we don't understand how it works. And yet, Jesus, that's not uh, the test of faithfulness and obedience that you've set before us to, to be able to come to a point and say, I know all the ins and outs of the hypostatic union. I know exactly how that works. That's not what you've called us to do. We believe it to be true. We thank you that it's true. We're in awe that it's true. But what you've called us to, Jesus, is to stay awake, to stay alert, to stay faithful and obedient, to be your witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to not only enjoy the grace that you've showered upon us, but to extend your grace to others so that when you come back, we are found faithful. Thank you, Jesus, that you promise that we are uh, sealed in the Holy Spirit, that nothing can separate us from your love, height or depth or breadth or width. Nothing, God, can separate us. That those you have called are yours forever. So, Jesus, I pray that you would find us faithful and obedient, alert and awake until the time that you come back, which we do not know. But Jesus, we rest uh, secure in the promise that you are coming back. You're coming back for us. You're coming back to make all things new. You're coming back to set things right. And so we praise you for that. I pray, God, this morning that uh, if there's anyone who is not resting in the assurance of your salvation and your calling on their life, God, that they would, uh, their eyes would be open to their need for you, that you would draw them by faith to trust in your son. That you would show us what it means to, to die to ourselves initially by faith and surrendering our lives and daily as believers to die to ourselves, to take up our crosses and to follow Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.